Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Uh, and this week, I will be reviewing the second volume of Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez's comic book classic, and I consider it a classic at this point, Lock and Key, Volume 2 being Head Games. So I started my review of this last week. It's something that I've been meaning to do for a long time, uh, and I just haven't gotten around to it. As I've said before, um, and, and I'm still getting some requests for the, the Nosferatu AMC show that's on, I, I'm not going to review that, um, so rather I, I do want to continue with Joe Hill and stick with within the world of Joe Hill, which is why I'm going to focus my energies on Lock and Key. So if you're tuning in for the first time, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Um, uh, I'm sure that you're tuning in not necessarily because you were um, interested in my thoughts on a comic book, um, and you were probably more interested in my thoughts on Stephen King. Well, the good news is you have all of my thoughts on Stephen King, um, on all things Stephen King, for over 200 episodes. Um, and now we've been able to work our way through all of the work of Stephen King into the works of his son, Joe Hill. And that, of course, includes something that's near and dear to my heart, which is comic books. And the reason why I framed it like this is because I do believe that despite the fact that they, um, more than ever, comic books are really shaping our pop culture in explosive waves and pushing it forward and pushing the boundaries of imagination Um you know, I still I still believe on some level there is a um, turning of the nose towards comic books, and I really wanted to dispel that um, and showcase the the talent that really goes into making a book like this work. Which, when it's on, it is on, and when uh, Hill starts crafting a Stephen King style of story. He's going toe-to-toe with his dad. And the whole backstory to the um, the mysteries of the key house and um, Rendell's past and how that's influencing and affecting the future, um, all of that feels very it to me. And it's great. Um, so... There's a lot to unpack in Lock and Key, so these reviews will take us a while. Um, and just like last week, this review will be on Volume 2, Head Games, and I will read the summary of the entirety of Head Games and then do a summary of each individual issue followed by my um, analysis and thoughts on that particular issue. So again, like I said last week, uh if you have not read Lock and Key, you're really missing out, and you should get ahead of of the conversation around Lock and Key because there will be conversation once the um, the Netflix show comes out because it's being adapted for a, a Netflix show. It had been in development hell for a long time, and not even hell. I mean, it had been in development in pre-production on, on numerous occasions, most famously uh, for Fox. The pilot screened at a Comic-Con one year. Um, it was ready to go. I mean, it had some big names. It had um, um, last name Otto, Miranda Otto, is that right, from Lord of the Rings as Nina. It had um, 
Oh, it's 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 his name is is uh, slipping my tongue, but who played Duncan? But uh, another well-known actor. Um, I mean, and and the, the the you can watch. I think you can watch the pilot somewhere. I'm sure you can get it somewhere um, on some bootleg or torrent. But I'm not uh, I'm not saying that that's a good idea. But I think that you can find it out there. Uh, the the trailer is out. Uh, for sure, you can watch that on YouTube. I don't. Re- I mean, I recommend watching it, but I am glad that this did not go through. This feels very early two thousands. Um, I think that it really would have dated the show in a way that a show nowadays won't. I think there's a timelessness to um, the some of the aesthetic of um, television production these days. But if you watch the trailer, you'll see that it's very. I don't know. Early 2000s, almost kind of feels like late 90s Fox. Not great. And um, so I'm glad that they, 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 uh, that that didn't go through. I mean, and what's interesting is that in the pilot, it covers the entire first volume, Welcome to Lovecraft. Uh, And then every episode after that was going to be a very episodic sort of procedural story in which it's the key of the week. That sounds awful to me. I'm glad that that did not happen. I hope that we get a more true to form and uh, closer to the, the comic books version of, of, the, of the story. Uh, Carlton Cuse is show running it. Carlton Cuse being one of the, the two showrunners of one of my favorite shows of all time, Lost. Uh, Carlton Cuse also happens to be just one of the go-to showrunners. Um, he just knows how to keep a ship sailing straight, and so I'm I'm very happy that he is involved um, in this in this project. So all of that, I'm trying to get to the point, which is there will be a lot of conversation around Lock and Key in the next couple of years. So if you have not read Lock and Key, I strongly recommend that you go out uh, to your local brick and mortar comic book shop. Um, if you aren't aware of where yours is, I know that there's one around you somewhere that I think that you can find out. So if you do a, a Google search for a comic book store in your area, I know that the proprietor would be very uh, pleased and appreciative of you um, swinging by his or her, her store to uh, to pick up any of the volumes of Lock and Key. I strongly recommend it so that you can follow along with all of my thoughts. So before I get to that, I want to read a, um, a listener email, which any of you can do at any point. You can write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And we have... Um, uh, a message from Bryant, who has written in um, on, on many occasions. Uh, he's a longtime listener, and I greatly appreciate all of the, the feedback and thoughts that he has given me throughout the years. So he writes, Hi, CR. I enjoyed your recent Catching Up on Things episode, and I'm stoked to hear the first Lock and Key episode. I wanted to drop a quick line just to say that I myself had very similar feelings to yours about Nosferatu television series for the first two, maybe three episodes. At some point after that, though, I began to look forward to it each week. I think that what happened here, maybe, is that the producers kind of went about the adaptation the wrong way, resulting in in some miscalculations that are going to be difficult to get over. But with that, they've got mostly 
a very good cast that's doing strong work. So even though the series is a bit of a disappointment through its first half of the season, it's got some strong points too, such as one, I really, really like Ashley Cummings as Vic. I kind of miss the younger version of the character from the novel, but what they've done is try to showcase the world-weary older version in a teenage take on the character. I'm not sure that that was a good decision, but they found a genuinely excellent actress to play the role and then have given her enough family trouble that the world-weariness aspect actually kind of plays. Very valid. Uh, Two, phony accents uh, accepted. The actors playing Vic's parents are also great and only get more so each week. Speaking of which, so I'm going to actually interject. The um, I cannot remember the actor's name who plays Vic's father. Um, uh, he's great. He really is great. You know, um, for me, my first introduction to him, he played Desi on Girls, um, and he was a whirlwind of emotion and energy uh he was sort of like a manic pixie dream boyfriend sort of figure to allison williams's marnie uh folk singer with uh a, just a lot of emotional issues and and some drug issues and it turns out um he was great in that and then he played microchip in punisher season one season one um and he was the best part of that uh, who played a completely different type of character. Every time I see him, he plays a different type of character. And it's it really shows the range that he has. And he has a natural charisma. I, um, I, I strongly suspect that he will be going places and that this is the, the beginning of a very long career. Um, m- much in the way, like going back to girls, uh, Adam Driver. You know, when he was cast as Kylo Ren, I said, yes, I absolutely believe that that guy is a star because no one can deliver a line like him. He has his own cadence that's unique to him, the way in which Christopher Walken has his own cadence and he has a charisma, the likes of which that you don't see um, in others. It's just unique. Um, This actor, whose name I can't remember, very, very similar. Um, similar in the fact that it's different. Uh, and I expect him to, to go on to, to do great things better than what we're seeing here in um, Nosferatu, which isn't a knock on him. It's just the material that he has to work with. Um, anyway, and then uh, Bryant continues, Bing is terrifying. He's kind of blowing Charlie Manx off the screen, which is a problem, but an interesting one. Four, Zachary Quinto is a mixed bag as Charlie Manx. It's a tough character to pull off on screen, I think, and the production has done itself no favors by presenting Charlie in more or less a straightforward fashion. Yes, Bryant hit the nail right on the head, and I was trying to articulate that, and I couldn't quite get there. Um, But no, it's yes. There's no threat around Charlie. There's no mystery around Charlie. There's no... It's just here's Charlie Manx, guys. Just let's pre- let's present him on the screen. You're you're absolutely right. It this is it's a very very straightforward um, fashion. This is proof of just how, as you mentioned in your review, difficult Joe Hill's tone is to translate from page to screen. I'm not sure what the solution was for this. The series did not find it. That's for sure. I'll interject. So in the book, spoilers alert for the the book. But our introduction to uh, Charlie Manx is he's in a hospital bed and he's been in a coma for years. All right, but Hill is very, very quickly able to start to increase the dread in the room that there's something wrong with this hospital patient. Um, and you, you get the sense that 
this thing that's lying there is a dangerous ticking time bomb. And people feel it, even though he's just this, basically a sleeping corpse. So the fact that he, spoiler alert, winds up waking up, it just it raises the stakes um, in terms of, of him as a monstrous character. Whereas the, the Charlie Manx that we see in this show is just, like Bryant said, very straightforward. Um, he just shows up, he says who he is, he says what he wants, he mentions Christmas Land, the whole nine yards, and it's not that interesting. Um, he continues, not in the first few episodes at least. I will say, though, that in the fifth episode, when Vic and Charlie finally have a face-to-face confrontation, it's pretty great. You can feel Quinto and Cummings feeding off one another, each elevating their game in response to what the other is doing. All of a sudden, in that scene, Charlie Manx does work, and Quinto works in the role. He's not bad elsewhere. He's kind of just stranded, stranded by the approach the show's writers and the directors took with him. I hate to think how poorly the role would have been um, with someone less talented than Quinto playing Charlie. And then number five, the first two episodes were directed by Kari Skogland, who also directed Children of the Corn 666, Isaac's Return. Just saying. Uh, then he goes on to write, She's done plenty of better work, mostly on television since then, of course, but I don't think she had a solid handle on what the tone for Nosferatu should have been. And then he writes, uh, The first... Uh, I agree that the opening credit sequence is lame and ineffective. That said, there's a cool little musical Easter egg right at the end. It quotes Dies Ira, a famous Latin hymn that can be found in about a gajillion movie scores, including the main titles for The Shining. More germane to this conversation, though, it's also the musical backbone of Danny Elfman's song Making Christmas from The Nightmare Before Christmas. Pretty cool. I agree. Number seven, the actress who plays Maggie is apparently a YouTube star best known for her makeup tutorials. Sure, why not? Um, I don't think she was particularly good in the first few episodes, but she too has grown on me with each episode. All in all, it's a weird show. I'm much more interest, um, invested in Vic's likely doomed to fail attempts to get into RISD than I am in Charlie Manx kidnapping kids, which is a problem. But I am definitely invested in that and her sad relationship with both her mother and her father. So it's not a complete failure on its own merits, and there are still five episodes for this horror element to begin working more consistently. As far as I can tell, literally nobody is watching the show other other than me and Joe Hill. So my guess is that it's going to be a one-and-done failure. Hopefully Netflix's lock and key will finally get Hill right. Bryant. Bryant, thank you for writing in. Um, that's a, a very thorough review of the show. Um, and I, I really appreciate it. Uh, and I think that I, I do want I do want the thoughts of Nosferatu to be represented on this show, even without me actually reviewing it. Um, so really, I am asking you guys to do the heavy lifting for me. And please give your thoughts. So if you have similar issues with the show or if you like the show and you're like what is everybody talking about here is why i like it please write in to stephen kingcast at yahoo.com to, to let me know because you know i just read an article the other day that was like this show is great why is nobody talking about it i didn't agree with any of the points but then again i only did watch one episode um so i, I can't really speak for later episodes or the or the the total the, the all of it right now um so if you have any thoughts on Lock and Key, uh, for good or for bad, um, please write in. 
All right, so with all of that out of the way, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to get into my review of Lock and Key Volume 2 Head Games. Um, so up first, like I said, I'm going to read the summary of the entirety of this particular story arc, um, Head Games. From Wikipedia, a few weeks after the death of Sam Lesser, Professor Joe Ridgway is walking through the halls of Lovecraft Academy when he sees Zach Wells walking with Tyler Locke. Joe hesitates, recognizing Zach's appearance as being identical to Lucas Caravaggio, a boy who died in 1988. Dodge informs Ellie Whedon that Joe recognized him. He uses the Anywhere key to enter the police station, steals a gun, and enters Joe's house. Dodge confirms that he was once Lucas and claims that he is back to finish something. He offers Joe a bottle of pills, which Joe declines. Joe attacks Dodge, breaking a glass on his face, and Dodge shoots Joe in the chest, killing him. Dodge returns to the Whedon household, where he has Ellie help him stage Joe's death as a suicide. At Key House, Bodie Locke explores the grounds for where to use the head key. Kinsey Locke is distraught after learning of Joe's death and runs away from school, despite Jackie Vita's attempts to console her. Kinsey heads to the beach, where she is approached by Tyler and Dodge, who comfort her. While there, Tyler briefly meets Jordan Gates and is invited to join the school's hockey team by Brinker Martin. One thing about Joe Hill, he definitely comes up with uh, unique names. Uh, Duncan Locke prepares to return to Provincetown and says his goodbyes to Nina Locke, Kinsey, and Bodie. When he speaks to Tyler, he is introduced to Dodge and hesitates, wondering how he recognizes him. Dodge returns to Ellie and tells her that Duncan remembered him, despite not having seen him uh, since Duncan was eight years old. Bodie gathers Tyler and Kinsey, having discovered that the head key fit into a keyhole in the back of his neck. He opens his head to Tyler and to Kinsey's horror. Tyler and Kinsey stare in disbelief at Bodie's open head. Nina walks by, seemingly unbothered by Bodie's state. At Bodie's insistence, Tyler and Kinsey look inside his head to see colorful interpretations of memories. They realize they can put things in to instantly gain information by putting a cookbook into Bodie's head. They also learn they can remove memories by pulling them out, but the physical forms of the memories are not always reliable or accurate. Tyler, falling behind in his schoolwork, uses the head key to learn the material from his class, while Kinsey considers taking something out of her own head. The next day at school, Tyler invites Dodge and Jordan over to show them how he got caught up with the class's readings. In Provincetown, Duncan teaches an art class as he recalls when he was a child, and he followed Rendell Locke and his friends into the Drowning Cave. Discovered, Duncan was escorted out by Lucas Caravaggio. As the class ends, he is phoned by his boyfriend, Brian Rogan, and invited out for a drink. At Key House, Kinsey is furious with Tyler for sharing and inviting people over to show them the head key. When he uses it, Jordan runs away horrified while Dodge feigns ignorance. Duncan and Brian go to a bar where they are assaulted by two homophobic patrons. Duncan is knocked out when he is struck with a beer bottle. He comes to in his home where, delirious, he tells Brian that Duncan needs to phone Tyler, claiming that he's in trouble. Kinsey has Tyler use the head key on her um, and instructs him to remove her fear uh, and her ability to cry. He does so and places the two, each manifested as a small monster, in a glass bottle. When Tyler falls asleep that night, Dodge takes the head key from Kinsey's room and uses the 
um, anywhere key to enter Duncan's home. He removes Duncan's memories of Lucas and soon is discovered by Brian. Dodge threatens Brian at gunpoint, causing Brian to run outside where he is hit by a car driven by the attackers from the bar. Dodge then uses the Anywhere key to enter the Whedon house. He then uses it to remove a part of him that had been inside Ellie for the last several months that had kept Ellie in line. They recall how the previous spring, Ellie found a jar in her bathroom containing the gender key, a fragment of Dodge and the echo key, with a note reading, Locks Well House, Say My Secret Name. Um, after an unsuccessful attempt to kill her abusive mother, Ellie entered the well house where she said Dodge's name. Dodge rose from the well and killed Ellie's mother, though Ellie was unable to process exactly what had happened since grown-ups never believe. After removing Ellie's memories of Lucas, Dodge went to Rufus's room, but no keyhole appeared on his neck to insert into the head key. Dismissing Rufus as being insignificant, Dodge left, though Rufus was aware of the situation, thinking of Dodge as a replicant. I'm sorry, during this... Um, the reason why I'm a little kind of like st- not stuttering but stammering um, during the, the reading of this, uh, there is no reference at all of Rufus yet until it mentions Rufus, which is a weird thing to say. But to just clarify, Ellie has a child by the name of Rufus, okay? And he will play an important part. Okay. Um, dismissing Rufus of being as being insignificant, Dodge left, though Rufus was aware of the situation, thinking Dodge as a replicant. Dodge re- returns the head key to Kinsey's room. She wakes up, and he claims to just have been looking at the tears and fears she removed from her head. She confesses her attraction to him, and they share a kiss. Okay. We kick off the second volume. Not with a reintroduction to the Locke children, but a previously unseen character. Well, it's not entirely true. We did see him briefly, glimpsed, in the yearbook photo that Ellie had looked at in the previous arc. Between Dodge's declaration that the Locke children weren't coming in at the beginning of their own book, but at the end of someone else's chapter, by kicking off with a character who shares a past with the members in that photograph, including Rendell Locke and Dodge himself, Hill immediately reinforces the fact that this isn't just a story about a family of children coming to terms with the death of their father, but a story about how the father himself and the literal ghosts of his past have come to haunt his kids. This new character, Professor Joe Ridgway, an elderly English teacher at Lovecraft Academy, is revealed to us through a dream that he's having, of younger days, brighter ones, of freedom and youth and sex. When he awakens, he's a little lost, out of time, and lonely, missing his partner in crime, Callie. While walking the halls of the academy, he spots a familiar face, but one that can't exist, the face of a student that he had in the 80s, Lucas Don Caravaggio, the boy who would become to known as Dodge. Instinctively, he calls out his name and Dodge reacts, somewhat confirming his suspicions. But, of course, living in a normal world, how could this be? Still, it's creepy to watch the doppelgangers of his former students walk down the hallway. 
or watch him watch the doppelgangers of his former former students walk down the hallway. Mm. Despite despite the impossibility of it all, his spidey sense is tingling. The ghost of Tyler's father's best friend walking through the hallways, a transfer student staying with Ellie Wheaton. There's too much coincidence for Joe to feel truly comfortable with all of this. Unfortunately, his concern is evident to Dodge, whose inhumanity is on display within the Whedon household as he attempts to levitate. His abusive nature to Ellie is revealed, as is the fact that Ellie has a son who suffers from an undiagnosed disorder that could be somewhere uh, that could be somewhere within the autism spectrum. As Dodge dismisses Rufus for not being able to understand him, Rufus, while playing with his toys, indicates to the reader that he is picking up on the danger radiating off of Dodge in a way that's reminiscent of Seth and the Regulators without the evil influence of Tack. The mysteries continue to expand, with Hill giving us just a little bit more of a tease to whet our appetite and to make us yearn for more. I still remember the day Caravaggio disappeared, along with the Topher girl and Cho, and of course, what happened to Aaron Voss. Awful. Just awful. Worst day in the history of this school. Rendell was devastated. Never the same. How can you not want to find out what happened after that? Who are the people he speaks of? Why is this the worst day of the school? What exactly were the events that transpired, and what does it have to do with the present day? He has a flashback to the play in which they all starred, a production of The Tempest, and from the image provided by Rodriguez, we see that the magic of which Ridgway refers is a literal magic, the same kind derived from the keys themselves. And as Ridgway sneaks into the admissions office, haunted by the ghost of happier times, as his deceased wife had once been the owner of that office, he does a little detective work only to discover that the transcripts of the new students had been doctored. And when a shadow crosses the office window, you immediately grow deeply afraid for Joe. In a short span of time, you fall for this character, this heroic, heartbroken old man who is drawn to seek the truth, even if it means he'll die for it. His fatal mistake is not immediately going to the police. Instead, he retreats to his home to take a bath and drink and think about it. And suddenly the lesson he had scrawled on the board to his class earlier in the issue during his teaching of Hamlet suddenly seems to take on new meaning for him. Inaction is a choice he had written, and by choosing inaction, it gets him killed. The confrontation between the teacher and his former student is sad, but not necessarily horrific. He's unsurprised to find the boy he'd known as Luke in his bathroom, and it seems as though Dodge is relieved to not to have to pretend to be someone else in this moment. In fact, his tenderness towards the professor seems genuine, and there's a sense of remorse over what he has to do, and this speaks to Joe Hill's writing ability, um, that he is not presenting Dodge as just an inhuman monster and really makes the whole Dodge... um, Character. I don't want to get into spoilers yet for what Dodge really is, but the relationship between what we want to call Dodge and the ghost and memories of Lucas Caravaggio, uh, it, it makes it very complex in a way that Twin Peaks, I'm going to plug my Twin Peaks podcast, Hang with Agent Cooper. By the time we get to Firewalk with me, there's a lot of complexity with Leland Palmer. Spoiler alert for Twin Peaks. Spoiler alert if you have not watched it. 
Watch out, guys. But with Leland Palmer and Bob, all right, because as originally presented to us, um, you could explain all the horrific actions um, taken by Leland Palmer as is when Bob was in control and was steering the ship. But it's not that simple because as seen in uh, Firewalk With Me, it's not as if Bob is in control all the time. It's that Bob had the possession by Bob just corrupted, just absolutely corrupted Leland. Um, And Leland is at fault for a lot Maybe not the most horrific aspects and not the worst aspect, but um, Leland was not pure, unfortunately, because he had been corrupted. And similarly here, um, there is no... So it makes moments like this uh, really effective um, and interesting to just mull over. When the moment presents itself, uh, Ridgeway strikes... And just like Hamlet, he is struck down. Um, He's shot through the chest, and he sinks into his bathtub. The dream he had awoken from in the beginning of the issue comes full circle as he sinks back into that dream, which is heaven, as he's followed the love of his life into the water, where at last he's found her again. It's a truly beautiful ending. It's tragic and hopeful, all wrapped up in a little bow. In my reviews of Hill's short stories within 20th Century Ghost, I've heaped my praises on his ability to end a story. Not only does he back us into the corner throughout the issue with a flurry of fists, but when it comes to the end, he doesn't win on technicality, but he straight up goes for the knockout. And this issue is no different. From the bookended nature of the storytelling to the loss of his wife, established profoundly throughout the issue, it works wonders. And the bittersweet death of Joe Ridgway makes you feel like you've lost a favorite teacher. It's only going to throw a shadow over any flashback scene that we get to the 1988 students in sunnier days before the darkness and dodge had come for them. Okay, so that was uh, the interlude, which brings us to issue one, my review. We pick up where we left off um, in uh, Welcome to Lovecraft with the cleanup at um, the, 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 the murder. Zach enlists the help of Ellie and shows his unfamiliarity with the modern world, not truly understanding how to use a computer or what an email is. But even though it appears that they might have successfully framed the murder to look like a suicide, Detective Mutuku isn't buying it. From the gun without serial numbers to the fact that he's been shot through the chest. When one of the men find a bloody shard of coffee mug that Ridgway had cracked over Dodge's head, we get a little bend in the road. How will the detective's investigation turn out? Adding this into the mix is a great way to keep the momentum going. Hill also continues to expand his roster of characters introducing us to Scott Kavanaugh and Jamal Saturday, who will wind up joining the Locks Quartet. Kinsey takes the death of Professor Ridgway hard and is quickly cheered up by the presence of her brother and his new best friend, Zach, and the simple act of giving her an ice cream cone should set off some warning bells. Hill spends some necessary time with Tyler and Zach, not showing Dodge being creepy, but honestly creating a sense of two high school friends being friends, being a little lazy, carefree, and fun. It's necessary to establish scenes like this in order to make Zach's betrayal effective. And by establishing scenes like this, it makes the reader, along with Ty, question whether or not it was all betrayal or if Zach did care on some level, going back to what I was saying about where that delineation is. After all, he was complimentary of Joe Ridgway, uh, Joe Ridgway when he shot him. He can be a predator 
and he can also care about the prey that he stalks, it seems. It's during the scene that we get our introduction to Jordan Gates, the mystery bad girl slash rich girl love interest of our hero who rides off on her motorcycle with Tyler's heart in her hands. It also checks off a box on the list of Joe Hillism's Girls on Motorcycles, which we get a lot of in Nosferatu, which you can find on AMC. Um, although right now Vic isn't riding um, a motorcycle, she's riding a dirt bike, but that is just a stepping stone for her as she gets older. Back at Key House, Duncan has to say goodbye uh, to his his family um, because he has to return to his old life. And though Duncan hasn't been in it much, his presence to the characters has been that of inspiration and concern. He's someone to rely on. With him gone, the locks should feel vulnerable. And as he leaves, he touched base with his family, revealing small moments of insight and intimacy with these characters, from his acknowledgement that he knows Bodhi will be fine, to the very specific admission from Kinsey that though she had only one conversation with Ridgeway, she felt like they were supposed to be friends. Sometimes the tragedy comes not from the loss of someone you know, but the person you never got a chance to know. And when he says goodbye to Tyler, something about Zack causes him to hesitate, shaking his hand. On some level, he remembers him. Something about Zack causes him to hesitate shaking his hand. On some level, he remembers him, what he used to be, back when the story focused on his older brother and his brother's dead best friend, the same best friend who was back to befriend his dead brother's son. That's certainly a sentence. This issue concludes with the physical representation of the collection's title, Head Games. Throughout the issue, Bodhi has been trying to find the door that went with the key he had discovered outside of the wellhouse that he had seen the previous arc and reveals to Kinsey and Ty that the key can unlock the top of his head. Issue 2. The Locke children completely freak out at the sight of their little brother missing the top of his head, but when Nina sees it, she acknowledges um, it half-heartedly and walks away. It's a very specific effect that one... Uh, has from magical influence that is rarely seen, but becomes a signature of Hills. All right, I have not seen this kind of like acknowledgement of something going on, but not doing anything about it and not being weirded out by it. I've never seen it like this before outside of Joe Hill. And the first time I saw it, it was when um, he wrote Horns, my review you can find in the Stephen King cast. Um, it's a two-parter, I believe. Um, with Iggy's superpower over others. Um, I think that in some level in Nosferatu, I want to say as well, but um, it's done really, really well um, in, in Horns. I strongly recommend reading Horns if you have not done so. But what's important here is that this isn't a novel, okay? This is a comic book, and Joe Hill is only one half of the creative duo, the other half being artist uh, Gabriel Rodriguez. And with Rodriguez at the helm, he shows us why this is better served as a comic book rather than a novel, with images like the splash page when Kinsey and Tyler peer into Bodhi's brain to discover a boy's thoughts manifested into physical objects, dinosaurs, Legos, cavemen, robots, castles, superheroes, and more. With an incredible visual supernatural effect taking place, Hill quickly establishes the rules that when one uses the key, you can place objects into and take objects out of one's head. Hill explores the unreliability of memory as the characters they pluck from Bodhi's mind are warped distortions of the real thing. Once Bodhi has gone to sleep, Kinsey and Tyler begin to discuss the events of the previous arc, 
and what Dodge's motivation might be. It's the first time they're acknowledging that something truly strange is occurring, and that's the reason why their father was murdered. Tyler studies for his test by literally, this is great, this is what's great about this, is that it works on multiple levels. Tyler studies for his test by literally cramming the books into his brain, and the issue ends with the suggestion that he's going to share the key with Jordan and Zach. Issue three starts phenomenally, with a young boy making his way along the edge of a cliff overlooking the sea following sounds of voices emanating from a place known as the Drowning Cave. The scene invokes how the losers explored the Barrens, or um, the, the, the Morlock tunnels from the time machine. The reveal comes that um, this is not occurring in present day, but rather it's a flashback, Duncan's flashback, and he had to follow the sound of his brother and his friends to a location that will have monumental significance for characters in the past, in the present, and the future. Also, by taking the time to show this flashback, it draws a connection to Bodhi and Duncan. That with Duncan, Bodhi can look into the future to see himself. What you might not notice are the shadows. Rendell's shadow is the warrior, while Dodge's shadow is that of a wolf. The scene segues to the present, where Duncan is providing his um, art expertise on how to see more clearly when illustrating a picture upside down. In doing so, one of his students makes him realize that in his picture, based on the photo he'd taken of the drowning cave, he incorporated people who weren't in the photo. His brain, which had been made to forget the events that transpired decades ago, is fighting that memory loss. That very same memory loss is discussed by Dodge and Ellie, who is having difficulty coping with her role in the deaths of high school friends and the recent death of Joe Ridgway. Because of her involvement with Dodge, she seems less susceptible to the memory loss that adults have when they leave the childhood behind. And this is something that we had seen, of course, most famously with It. Back at Key House, Tyler follows through with his terrible decision to introduce Jordan and Zach to the keys, specifically the head key. Naturally, the demonstration freaks out Jordan, and worse, it allows Zach his opportunity to gain more leverage over the Locke children. Wisely, Hill continues to center the issue on Duncan, who is an important transitional character in the series, as the only one who can bridge both of the generational stories. And for anyone familiar with New England locations, by having he and his boyfriend Brian live in Provincetown, Massachusetts, is a treat. For those of you who don't know, uh, Provincetown is located on Cape Cod, which is a massive East Coast vacation destination. And Provincetown isn't only a coastal town with great restaurants, attractions, and activities. It's also considered the gay capital of Massachusetts. So it's no surprise that Hill decided to include this location as Duncan's home. I'm not sure, though, but from an outsider's perspective, uh, the culture seems so thoroughly um, LGBTQ-friendly. I'm not sure if the scene in which Brian picks a fight with two homophobes in the bar is realistic. I don't know. I just, I don't know. Um, With that said, it's still a good scene, and it veers away from your typical gay stereotypes in fiction. All Brian wants to do is have a beer at the bar and watch the game. That is a scene that has played out with countless heterosexual males and less frequently plays out for how their homosexual counterparts are represented in fiction. Needless to say, Hill includes it for a reason, and during the bar fight, Duncan finds himself knocked out and drifting in a memory when he was Bodhi's age, talking to Dodge, who was shooing him away from the dangers of the drowning cave. 
He awakens with the deep dread that something is terribly wrong and was going to happen, and he needs to contact Tyler. Whether he gets through to him is uncertain due to the fact that the two women that started the bar fight are parked outside his house, and they want to finish what they started. Meanwhile, back at the key house, the story takes the next leap as Hill plays with what is possible when using the head key. Kinsey's character takes center stage and she's less interested in what you can put into your head with what you can take out of it. And by taking away the negative thoughts that plague her, she feels as though she'll be better equipped at handling life in all of its complexity. Needless to say, this is exactly an idea that many of us would want to try. Who wouldn't want to expunge insecurity, hateful thoughts, intrusive thoughts, self-guilt, and depression? If we could literally remove the nagging negative voices in our head, would it mean that we would be happier? By exploring this possibility, Hill dived into deeper waters of human emotion and the complexities that come with how our worst thoughts can, at times, be the best things for us. Issue 4. Hill gives us the specifics of the thoughts that Kinsey had plucked from her head. The two monsters are fear and sadness. As they watch the two monstrous thoughts spew venom and wail, our own fear and sorrow begin to creep up on us, and we begin to worry at Zack's questioning of where Duncan lives. When the question, when the characters reveal that he lives in Provincetown, readers should remember what happened the last time a character discovered the private home of the Locke brothers. Speaking of Kinsey's thoughts, the fear monster that spews Venom actually looks like Venom. Whether that's intentional or not, it completely works knowing that this is the function of the creature. It's a symbiotic thought upon sadness, has a long tongue, it's tarry black, and has sharp teeth. Now, the manifestation of these thoughts has since been wonderfully popularized with Inside Out, and this series predates that Pixar film. I wonder if this had been released, um, if this had been released in a post-Inside Out world, or if the story beat would be criticized. It would, if it would be criticized as being a ripoff. Um, regardless, many of us wouldn't know what it would feel like without these basic emotions, but that's why Joe Hill gets paid the big bucks. With the help of Gabriel Rodriguez's wonderful illustrations, he's able to ground this crazy concept with the following explanation of how Kinsey is feeling having expunged these emotions from her mind. She feels like, and here's a quote, anything could happen that, anything could happen And that would be all right. Like the next thing that happens will be a Christmas present. Good, bad, whatever. I can't wait to open it. You ought to get rid of these things yourselves, your fears and your tears. Think about it. You've got one of them in your head all the time telling you lies and stabbing your best self. You got the other one drowning your thoughts in unhappiness. Tell me how they do you any good. As if to provide an answer to that query, Tyler points out that she's bleeding from the stabbing from the fear. Without the fear in her head, she didn't notice it, and she doesn't care. This, of course, can have disastrous results. Speaking of which, after the locked children go to bed, Zack uses the keys to go to Duncan's house. Duncan had passed out with the epiphany that Zack was the resurrected spirit of Lucas Caravaggio and needed to warn Tyler. Unfortunately for Duncan, Dodge arrives, but mercifully doesn't kill him. He uses the head key to pluck his memories from his head and flush them down the toilet. But unfortunately, Brian discovers him in the kitchen. We think it's the end for Brian, and it very well could be, but not in the way that Dodge had possibly hoped or planned. Surprised that anyone else would actually be there, he isn't able to get the drop on Brian, who manages to escape, and the only thing that saves his life is getting run over by the homophobic women from the bar. 
It's a completely unexpected resolution to the earlier setup, and it comically surprises Dodge as well. Unfortunately, as Dodge sneaks back into Kinsey's room without the emotion of fear within her, her inhibitions are left unchecked and she acts on her growing crush towards Zack. As her demon's in the bottle... <laughs> oh, I get it now. That... Again, that's really clever. Just like you, he, like we saw Tyler literally cramming for a test. We got demons in the bottle. Um, as her demons in the bottle warn her not to trust him, she does the exact opposite and kisses him. Hill wisely juxtaposes this scene with Zach making a pit stop at Ellie's house before returning to Kinsey, which shows the horrible fate that lies in store for Kinsey if she continues to venture down this road. Issue 5. The next issue picks up in between that space when Dodge nearly killed Brian and when he returned to Kinsey. We see him continuing to abuse Ellie, rooting around in her head, and we see that there had been times when she had attempted to either kill Zack or undermine his plans, whether it be stabbing him or attempting to call Joe Ridgway to warn him. The fact that she physically can't do anything to get in the way of Dodge shows how much of a prisoner she is. And I had mentioned the regulators earlier. Again, this feels like Seth's aunt from the regulators, trapped in her own home, unable to break free of the supernatural prison from that parasitic threat that has come for her. And then we get a flashback to when Dodge managed to truly get control of Ellie and an important insight into her life with her oft-mentioned mother. In previous scenes, Hill had referenced Ellie's mother, how terrible she'd been and how Ellie had killed her. What Hill does is make this horrid woman more than live up to the reputation that he had established. Her constant smoking, constant belittling of Ellie, her insults of Rufus, and the physical abuse to both of them is nonstop and it's truly upsetting. In a short amount of time, you feel like you get to fully understand the life that Ellie had been enduring, trying her best to be a mother to her son while shielding him from the torments of her abuser. The conflict builds and builds, and at one point, Ellie inadvertently finds a glass jar containing the female version of Dodge. It's just a thought, just a memory, much like Kinsey's demons, and inside the jar contained two keys. Naturally, Ellie freaks out, slips, and knocks herself out, and the Dodge thought slips inside her ear, explaining how he had come to somewhat possess her. As Ellie struggles to exist under the constant beratement of her mother, she comes close to pushing her down the cliff stairs, but is called out by her mother before she can do it. She runs to the well house and whispers the secret name of the ghost living within Dodge. And she's followed by her mother, uh, who continues her attack, this time dropping some nuggets of mystery with the fact that Lucas Caravaggio had seemingly left Ellie for another girl and had died with her. The mystery of what had happened to the previous generation is just as exciting as what's going to happen with the locked children. After the taunting continues, the ghost of Dodge slinks up from behind the well, with, uh, behind the mother and snaps her neck after Ellie stated that she wishes that she was dead. Dodge has a bit of a habit of granting people the wish of dead parents and will continue to play upon Ellie's guilt of wishing the woman dead. In an amazing reveal, Gabriel Rodriguez demonstrates why this issue is in black and white. It's not because it's a flashback, because we're watching the, content, the contents of Ellie's open mind. And as Dodge had previously expressed, the thoughts and minds of grown-ups are in black and white. The only ones with colorful thoughts are the children. 
So when Dodge shows up in the well fully in color, it shows that something quite isn't right. So when the panel pulls back and we see the events that we've been reading about are taking place inside her head. It's fantastic. It's a great reveal. Dodge removes all memories that she had had of Lucas Caravaggio and any events of Dodge that had led to this moment and our collective guts lurch as he heads into Rufus's room to do the same. However, as soon as he attempts to use the head key, he discovers that there's no keyhole on the back of Rufus's neck. He chalks it up to the fact that he believes that Rufus's IQ is so low, but as soon as Dodge leaves, Rufus begins talking to his toys as he always does, and as he has before, Hill shows us that the dialogue he gives the toys to illustrate that Rufus is absorbing all the information around him, around him and externalizing it through his play with the toys. But in a truly incredible ending of a mic drop ending, as soon as Dodge leaves, Hill reveals that it isn't that Rufus is playing with the toys, it's that Rufus has the ability to make his toys come to life. With that, this volume has concluded, and even though our villain has seemed to gain the upper hand, he has unknowingly a new opponent who is immune to at least one of the keys and is equipped with his own supernatural abilities. And the best part is, is that Dodge is so arrogant when it comes to Rufus that he can't see the threat that's directly in front of him. It's a phenomenal conclusion to a volume that did wonders at expanding the characters while burrowing deeper into the lives of the characters we were already introduced to. And though the story has ended, there's a very quick excerpt that concludes the story that raises more questions than it does answer questions. We get a brief rundown on the known keys, which includes the Anywhere key, the Head key, the Gender key, the Echo key, the Ghost key. And as they are written in journal entries, there's one final key whose page is burned. These pages are written by Benjamin Pierce Locke, 1757 to 1799. We now get the sense that the history of these keys just grew a lot older than just the life of Randall Locke. And the mystery continues, and you can't help but wait to get to the next volume. So I will get to the next volume next week. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for sticking with me for my five-issue review of Lock and Key Volume 2, Head Games. I'm really enjoying this um, dive into uh, this world. I love it. Um, Rereading it was such a blast. Um, And I I strongly, again, if if comic books are not your thing, make it your thing. There's more than enough out there. Go out, read Head Games. I'm sorry, read Lock and Key. You will not be disappointed. Um, And if you have any spare time on your hand, Please write in um, a nice review to iTunes. That would really help me out. Um, and any thoughts that you have, write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. And may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M O O N spells Stephen Kingcast.